Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We are very, very excited to have a repeat guest, Marvin Zeser, who some of you may remember that uh, spoke about our bow hunting in Arizona record book previously. Uh, luckily, Marvin uh, fit us in his busy schedule in order to come in and speak with us, reference his archery antelope world record. Um, for everyone that didn't listen to that previous episode, Marvin, if you could just kind of briefly uh, introduce yourself and talk a, kind of a little bit about how long you've been hunting and what makes archery antelope so exciting. Well, I've been... Uh been hunting for about 50 years now and um i am 60 and uh i've been hunting i've been hunting since i was 10 so about 50 years uh i started bow hunting Uh, first of all i started shooting a bow when i was a kid i i just loved the idea of shooting a bow i sold christmas cards personalized greeting cards and christmas cards door to door uh, where you could get them printed with your name on them uh, so that I could earn enough to get my first bow and uh, started shooting a bow in my backyard. So I'd always be in, been interested in shooting a bow. Once I got to college, uh, I was at the U of A in about 1980. And one day I was sitting in my room, I was looking through the hunting regulations. And at that point, I only hunted once a year. I went deer hunting with my family and did a little quail hunting or dove hunting. And So I'm looking through there in about 1980, and I saw that you could go deer hunting without getting drawn. You just bought a tag over the counter. So I told my roommate, who'd never hunted at all, but he also shot a bow. Uh, He started taking a bow shooting class at U of A to learn how to shoot a bow. So uh, we just decided we were going to be bow hunters. And uh, so we went to the PSE factory in Tucson and said, what do we need to be bow hunters? And they hooked us up with some arrows and uh, some broadheads and things like that, and we took the sheets and pillows off our bed, and and uh, we went and we were bow hunters. So, so okay. that's when I started about 1980. So I guess about 40 years now for bow hunting. So incredible. Um, what makes archery antelope? Since today's podcast is going to be specifically about antelope in Arizona and your your history of hunting them and and your record book antelope that you uh, harvested. What what draws you to our archery antelope hunts specifically? Uh, for some reason, antelope was always my favorite animal. Um, so f- to be fortunate enough to take a world record of an animal that was always my favorite. When I was growing up, even though we just mule deer hunted you know, one weekend a year with rifles, I just dreamed of hunting antelope someday. They were just beautiful. I subscribed to Outdoor Life since I was a, a young kid, and antelope stories were the first ones I always went to. They were just that's just a stunningly beautiful animal. Uh, most of the articles are about Wyoming, <clears throat> and uh, so I just always read the the article on antelope hunting and dreamed of someday going to Wyoming to hunt antelope. I don't even know if I knew for sure that Arizona had antelope back then, so. Um, that was the first article I read, and I'd reread those over and over. To this day, I remember there was a painting on the cover of one of the Outdoor Lifes, and it was an antelope running towards you, and it was a painting, and it said, biggest antelope in 100 years. And uh, so when I saw that, I was excited and read it, and it turned out it was, uh, I think that was in about 1983, and it was about the new Boone and Crockett world record antelope being taken in Arizona. 
um, near Prescott, and uh, that's probably the first time I knew that there were antelope in Arizona. And so then I got excited about uh, maybe hunting antelope in Arizona till I saw how hard that was even back then to draw. <laughs> they are a beautiful species. Uh, so with antelope, um, as we know, and uh, your love for antelope, and uh, I'm trying to think back when we were talking about the Bowhunt in Arizona record book a few months ago, um, when we talked about it, I think when I was looking, you probably have, what, three or four Arizona antelope in the book, I think? Somewhere um, in there, I'm thinking, somewhere in there. I, I don't know. I, I think I have five or six, maybe. Um, there's three that are pretty close to the top that are above 80 so those are the ones that jump out probably in the first page or two but um uh i i actually have the the so every every one i've killed uh with a bow and i've hunted in multiple states for antelope now but every buck i've killed has uh scored high enough uh for pope and young and um so, but the smallest one scored exactly 67, which is the minimum for Pope and Young. So, and, and you've mentioned several times that I have the world's record. And just to be clear to the audience, it's the world's record with a bow. It's not, it missed the Boone and Crockett world's record by an inch and two eighths or an inch and four eighths, I think, at the time. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was the Pope and Young world's record. And, um, uh, but, uh, but I also have one scored exactly 67, which is the minimum for entry into Pope and Young. So I actually have number one and number the last place yep. one as well. So I, I think that's kind of cool. Nope, and it was. And it's funny how um, I, I knew of the world record antelope, and that's back in the late 90s. I think when I first heard about it, then I finally started getting intrigued about archery antelope myself. And course that's when the first book came i think it was in 2000 or so is when that that book that, that i first saw i think it was around 2000 2001 when i got it and i remember the first thing i did is i, I had no idea where i wanted to hunt antelope but i figured if the book and you, we talked about that on the last podcast is i looked at the book and i said okay where are most of the archery antelope coming from and that's why i went right to that page and that's what led me to the unit turns out that my future friend had the world record antelope, didn't even know at the time when I was coming to get another animal scored, but it was interesting that I used the book to actually put me in the same unit as you that you shot, you know, multiple antelopes. So it's, it's pretty incredible how we can use the, if you go back to the, the other podcast that we did with Bowhunt and Arizona Record Book, that I actually used that information personally that led to a friendship that I wanted to learn how, to, how do I harvest an archery antelope myself, so. Uh, I think that's awesome. And uh, record books are a great source of information for somebody that wants to try and take a really big animal. And in this day and age where it takes 20, 25, 30 years to get an antelope tag or, you know, almost as long to get an elk tag in a good unit these days, uh, people are, I think, more interested than ever in getting a really large trophy. So record books are a great source of, of uh, places to hunt that, that are capable of producing an animal that big. Um, the Pope and Young record book and the Boone and Crockett record book both list the county that the animal was taken. And as you know, maybe county means a lot in the Midwest or the East in these small states. But in Arizona, Coconino County is one of the largest, maybe the second largest county in the United States. And it encompasses five or six different hunting units. It, 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 most people don't know this, but... Um, Part of the strip, the Kaibab, that's Coconino County, even though it's north of the Grand Canyon. So there are a lot of units in Coconino County. So if you look in Pope and Young and say, 
wow, the, the, they produce, uh, you know, Yavapai County or Coconino County produces a lot of big antelope. Yeah, Arizona's record book breaks it down by unit. So yeah. in, in that, you know, for Arizona hunting, uh, it's really nice to have the Arizona record book because it'll dial you in a lot smaller into specific units instead of a whole county that might be six or eight or nine different hunting units. Exactly, and that's what happened to me for being successful. But I can tell you the one thing that I didn't know that I, I looked at the book and uh, is the field, you know, how, how do you field judge what an antelope is? And you look at the book and you see all these different numbers and, and with antelope, it is completely different. Um, you look at the numbers and, you, and you're out there and you put your binoculars up and you're like, oh yeah, it's an 80 inch antelope all day. And you're looking at it from 500 yards away. Then the hunt comes up and the sand comes up and you're like, man, I just shot, you know, a Boone and Crockett 82 inch antelope. Then you get close to it and then you take it to someone like yourself, and we realize it's probably 10 or 15 inches smaller because it's there's an art to sizing and measuring an antelope, you know, when it comes to on the hoof. It's very deceiving, and I know I struggle with it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners and a lot of hunters um, struggle with it because, we don't, as you said, we don't get that tag very often. It's, it's one of those things that, especially in Arizona, you're lucky to get that tag three to five times in a lifetime if you're putting in for many, many years, and depending where you're putting in, I mean, it's just a very limited resource, especially in Arizona. So would you kind of like to talk about when it comes to field judging, what are kind of the things that you look for to hit that 67-inch Pope and Young uh, minimum or if, if you have aspirations to even go to the 82-inch or somewhere in between there? And I always looked at it as anything with a bow is, is an accomplishment, you know, and, and it's it's great feeling of success. But it's interesting as you mature as a bow hunter, it seems like your personal standards keep rising and rising and rising, which I never thought that would happen. And now here I am, you know, 30 years in the, as a bow hunter and, now it's like I'm passing these smaller animals that I would have never passed, you know, 15 years ago. It's interesting dynamic of how we mature as bow hunters. I totally agree. I, I, um, as I mentioned, I've hunted multiple states, New Mexico, Wyoming, several times each, probably at least three or four times in each of those states for antelope because I just love hunting antelope. And uh, I, for a person that's lived their whole life in Arizona to take, I think I've taken something like 19 antelope now and the vast majority of those are with a bow uh, in different states so I've had a chance to look at a lot of different horn formations the first really big antelope I ever took was in Arizona in 1993 uh, first above 80 inch antelope that I ever took and I was just sure that you know I did a little prayer and if I could take that animal that'll be the biggest thing I ever take in my entire life and I'd just be so excited and to this day if somebody asked me what the most excited I've ever been taking any animal in my life it was it was that first 80 inch antelope I've taken a few bigger than that since then I've taken some great trophies and several different species but I was so excited I I just remember almost high-fiving myself I was just excited when I when when that animal went down and uh um, so, um, but the things I've noticed, I guess, on, on judging, if you really want to learn to judge antelope and be very close to the score, there are several websites and several articles on the internet, and I would suggest you Google how to score antelope, and there are, or pronghorn, uh, but there are people that have specialized in saying, you know, use the length of the eye or the butt of the ear to measure the butt of the ant of the antler or horn. As as uh, I guess that that's a topic right there. Whether it's an antler or a horn, since it sheds. Um, but 
there are a lot of guides out there like that, and, and I'm not going to go into that today. I would suggest that if you're, you absolutely have to kill an 85-inch antelope or 90-inch antelope or Boone and Crockett 82-inch antelope, uh, find one of those, watch some videos, try and learn those techniques. Um, what I find is, you know, a lot of antelope have flat horns. If you view them from the back or from the front, uh, the horn itself is very flat and, and a very thin elongated oval. They're not a round horn. But there are antelope out there that have a round horn. The really big ones, that horn tends to have more of a round base. That long elliptical turns, not, not a circle, but it's a lot fatter um, compared to its length. So you're looking so, for mass. So basically yeah, you're looking for uh, and that's a, a, a That's horn an excellent point. So you're looking it, for the mass size. Of mass it. is absolutely everything on an antelope. There are 12 measurements on an antelope, uh, the length of each horn, the length of each prong. And then there's four mass measurements on each side. So, uh, so the mass measurements, there's a total of eight. Those are all mass. The prong is actually measured from the back of the horn around half of the, the main shaft of the horn and then out to the tip of the prong. So there's a half a measurement, half a mass measurement there. So um, the only thing that doesn't have a mass component is the length of the horn itself. And, and there's some argument that that you know, that a, a, a rounder horn is going to make a little longer horn. So mass is absolute everything. If you're looking for score itself, you're better off with a short, really fat, stumpy looking horn than you are a long, thin one. Um, I know people say, oh, I, I shot a 15 inch antelope. I shot a 16 inch antelope. But for score, the length of the horn isn't as important as the mass. And that's exactly what happened to me. I thought I had an 80 inch archery antelope because he was almost 15 inches and had nice hooks and looked beautiful and he had no mass and you go from the high to the low just to the self-centeredness of it that you want to get that <laughs> but then you look at it and he's he's a beautiful antelope because he has great wall appeal but then you look from the then as i think you showed this to me when i shot that first one as you said hey look at turn him sideways now look how thin he looks from the side you can actually almost look like he's paper thin almost where you showed me some of your other ones and said, now see the mass, and it's like day and night. Once you, once you compare that to one that has mass, it's it's truly incredible how your eye can see the difference. But I think in, for myself and most people, if you're not looking at it, you don't see the difference of what that mass looks like. I think the the, the easiest, quickest way to look at, a, at a, a great scoring antelope, I look for mass above the prong. Um, by far the vast majority of them uh, once you get above the prong, the horn is much thinner, mm -hmm. and they all look pretty much the same. You'll see some that are longer, some that have better prongs, some that are maybe fatter at the base. But above the prong, you, you know, they're about the same thickness. And then every once in a while, you'll see one that above the prong is just exceptionally heavy. If it's exceptionally heavy above the prong, it's probably a very round horn, and the base is going to be round as well. So it's going to carry that mass all the way down. So just if you're going to look at one thing, look for mass above the prong, in my opinion. Uh, find one that has exceptional mass, you know, at least decent length. It needs to have pretty good length. But let's say you go from a 16-inch antelope down to a 15-inch antelope. You've only lost two points on score. But if it's not as massive, you've lost that mass on 10 different measurements, potentially. So, um, huge. Uh, so it really adds up. An eighth or a quarter inch here or there. Uh, times 10 uh, 
is a lot different than just losing a little bit on length. So, great, great point. Thank you. Um, you're educating me a lot. I know uh, I've hunted antelope out of state, but I've never been drawn here in Arizona. Like you said, it is it takes a long time, especially if you want a rifle hunt. Um, have you always preferred hunting antelope in with a with a bow, or have you harvested some of them in the other states or even here with your rifle? So I I really got into archery because it was much easier to draw a tag. Even back in, I think I drew my uh, my very first antelope tag in Arizona was in 1986, and that was a uh, uh, a rifle tag. And uh, but it's even back then it took years to draw a tag, and on archery. It was hard. Success was low. <laughs> you know, when, when success is 5 to 10%, people don't want to do that. And, mm-hmm. and you're out there in August when, when it's 105 degrees out there on the prairie and you're trying to crawl up on an antelope. There weren't a lot of people that wanted to do it and not a lot of people that were successful at doing it. And while I eventually figured it out and got better at it, um, I'm not going to kid you. I hunted for four or five years with a bow. My very first antelope tag in Arizona was a rifle tag. That's the only one I've ever had in Arizona. Um, did not get an antelope. I was 11 years old, I think. Uh, so that would have been about 1971, I guess, was my first and only rifle antelope hunt in Arizona. Um, I put in for years after that. Uh, I think it was only... 20 or $30 to apply for an antelope tag back then and $10 more for an elk tag. And, uh, but it took years and years to draw an antelope tag. And, um, so about the time I started bow hunting when I was in college, I started bow hunting javelina and deer. I didn't kill anything with my bow for the first three or four years. Um, finally I killed a javelina and a mule deer buck on the same day, about 15 minutes apart. And then I was really hooked on this bow thing. And then a few years later, I got tired of not having an antelope tag and I was trying to find someone that was willing to go with me. And it was, it was tough finding someone that would put in even for archery elk back then, but archery antelope, especially. And, uh, I found a partner that would go with me. He, I introduced him to hunting. He wasn't a hunter before that. He bought a bow and, and I got him into hunting and, uh, we were hunting partners for years, Daryl Foster. And, uh, so we went out and, uh, started doing it in about 19, 86, uh, I had a 5B North tag. That was my my first tag. There were 125 tags, and uh, today there's eight tags on that hunt. So um, I absolutely hated it. And halfway through the hunt, I said, this is hard. This sucks. Let's go up to the Kaibab and hunt for deer because it was over-the-counter Kaibab back then. So we went up and hunted deer in the Kaibab for a few days. Then we came back and finished the antelope hunt. I ended up getting a couple shots right at the end of the, or maybe one shot at the very end of the hunt. I said, well, this could be fun. I could see how I might accidentally get one eventually. And then, uh, so I started putting in for that. I would put rifle first choice, archery second choice. And and I was fortunate enough to start in a time where I could get a tag almost every year, you know, maybe every other year, sometimes several years in a row. So I got to screw up a lot. And um, so I went, even though I'd, Probably had finally killed a couple of animals with a bow. Uh, it still took me another four years, maybe uh, five years or more, before I finally got one. Uh, I was almost ready to quit, and 
a friend of mine, uh, Rob Steffen, said, I think you've almost got it and, you know, you should stick with it. And uh, back then I would see some just tremendous antelope. And uh, so it helped give me the encourage of some of my fellow friends to just keep in, keep going. And eventually I got one. And once I broke the seal, I, I, uh, I, I got better at it. But, but it was a lot different than antelope hunting today. So It is true. And that kind of leads up to your world record, your archery world record, which was probably within 10 years of that, 15 years after that is when that happened, probably. Yeah, so my first archery hunt was in 1986. uh, And then my first, uh, I guess it would have been my first bow-killed antelope was in 1993. So it actually took me nine years. And during that time, I probably had five tags um, during that nine years, I would guess. And uh, so I... uh, I took an, an antelope a little over eight inches in 93. I was very excited. In 1994, I was excited to uh, come back and prove it wasn't a, a fluke, and I didn't get drawn in 94. So <laughs> 1995 came. Uh, I went out scouting in the same unit that I had killed my uh, buck in 1993. There were some tremendous bucks out there that year, and uh, um, so Mostly I just wanted to kill a nice buck. You know, it didn't have to be one of the giant ones. Everyone wants one of the giant ones, but yeah. I, I just was looking to prove that it wasn't a fluke, that I, I could actually do this. I just didn't get lucky one time. and yep. So that was really my goal, but I spent uh, a lot of time even before the results came out. I spent a lot of time uh, out photographing the antelope and, and getting some videotape of the antelope and... Um, so I, I had a good idea of what was out there. I had a particular buck in mind that I, I really thought would be the Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young world's record. And uh, as the season opened the night before the season, I couldn't sleep at all. I, I tossed and turned the entire night. And I, I no, I just didn't want anyone to, to shoot that buck before I had a chance at it. And, and, uh, um, and, and there were going to be 100 and, 109 of my closest friends out there with me. So um, <laughs> there, there were a lot of permits back then. And, yeah, well, times have changed, for sure, for sure. Uh, uh, so so that, that buck was killed in Unit 19A, and uh, when I first started hunting antelope, you could hunt the entire unit uh, of 19A with an archery tag. and um, But by the time I killed my buck, they had recently changed it to, to just a, a small part of the, the southern portion of Unit 19A. So... By the time 1995 came, you could no longer hunt north of uh, Highway 89A. Uh, So uh, everyone pretty much had to hunt the Fane Ranch. That was the only place. So, And they didn't cut down the permits. Back then there were, it was a split hunt. There were 110 permits on the early hunt and there were 80 permits on the second hunt. So 190 hunters out there just on that ranch. Uh, 110 at one time and um, so in some regards uh, the learning curve was learning how to out hunt the other hunters rather not only did you have to learn how to outsmart an antelope in in country that had no trees whatsoever just absolutely flat ground maybe a little gently rolling uh, but there were plenty of cattle that kept the grass short there was nothing to hide behind Uh, there were no pop-up blinds back then people didn't really hunt water back then for antelope um, the rainy seasons came every year and uh, everyone just uh, felt that there'd be no point in hunting water there were no range finders 
I did. I was lucky enough to have a very fast compound bow that shot 180 feet per second. Though. Man, that's smoking fast. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it was really a, a, a different world back then, uh, how close you had to get to, to one. The, the, the technology was so much yeah. different. Yeah, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Can you talk about all that, uh, the, the patience it requires in order to put a stalk on an animal that has such an incredible field of view and incredible eyesight, plus all the other hunters that are looking to see what, you know, where you're going or who you're going after? What kind of patience does that require? Or what kind of, was it spot stalk? Or if you can elaborate a little bit. So... Um, I've been f- fortunate enough to have the the chance to take bucks using almost every technique. I've uh, the very first one I shot that was over eighty. I was using a decoy. Um, I'm not convinced that they were coming to my decoy as much as I had, I had found that buck that I shot the night before the hunt and just watching it in the evening. I didn't get to hunt opening morning. I had uh, to be in town. Um, but in the evening I watched that buck and I said, oh, that's the most magnificent thing I've ever seen, uh, that 80 inch buck. And it had great mass above the prong. And, you know, if, if I could just, if I could just take that, that would make my life. That's going to be the biggest thing I ever kill. And, and, um, so I watched it and, and I just said, I'm not going to take any stupid shots. I'm not going to take any of these long shots that beginning antelope hunters take. Um, I don't want him to know I'm here. And so I was just very patient and, I had my decoy out there, and they went by me the next morning. But it was about a 65, 70-yard shot, and that was just way too far back then. That, that was just not even something I would consider taking a shot. Plus, they would now know that that was a decoy. And so uh, they walked into the distance, and some other hunters uh, were coming in the distance, and they saw them, and, and they turned and came back towards me, and I think they saw my antelope as a, a safe haven more than coming in to fight it. Um, even though the seasons were later back then, they were in September uh, more so than today where they're in August. So that was closer to the peak of the rut. But I, uh, there were two bucks and a doe, and I really think that they they just saw me as there's a safe area. And they, they came by closer this time at about 30, 32 yards, as I recall. And, and I, uh, the sun was just rising. They walked between me and the rising sun. I could barely even tell that they were antelope. I, Maybe I had no business even taking the shot, uh, but uh, but uh, the hay bales that I shot at in a field every morning, uh, getting ready, the sun came up. I would shoot before work, and the sun came up behind those hay bales every morning. So, yeah. in some regard, uh, I had taught myself to shoot into the rising sun. So, yeah. I got lucky there and and made the shot, and he only went a short distance. And that's great. Um, but but I've shot them using decoys. I've shot them spot and stalk. Uh, uh, Water is is uh, much more accepted today than it than it was back then. Hunting water, there are pop up blinds that that you can carry out and and put up at a water hole. Um, the area I was shooting my antelope was probably a mile and a half walk from the closest road, and uh, when I first started hunting water, I would get sheets of plywood and carry them one by one a mile and a half out there and and try and put together a blind. And, and that's all you could do or cardboard you know, in the early years, but then it would rain and your cardboard was gone and you wouldn't have anything the rest of the season. So sure. so, so, blinds just weren't very effective in the early years. Um, or, or you'd put up a blind and you'd get out there and someone had smashed it 
And, uh, you know, they wanted to hunt that water and they would have a blind set up next to it. And, and yours would be in, in pieces or completely gone. Sometimes it'd just be gone. So. And then, so let's fast forward to mid 2000s, you know, uh, 2010, 2015, 2020. Seems like now everybody is pretty much, um, especially when it's hot and it's dry, seems like water is very essential. And then putting up the very easy ground blinds, you could throw a ground blind on your back and set it up and, and you're good to go. So do you want to kind of talk about ground blinds and, and what antelope, do they have fear of ground blinds? Is there a certain distance you set them up at? And or is there a particular water sources that you'd want to set up a ground blind based on a direction or the wind? Because does wind have factor? Does the sun coming up have a factor? All those different things of actually placing a blind based on where we're at today currently. So I know a lot of things have changed from the 90s and early 2000s and now it seems like we've kind of gone to a a more, you know, we just run out there, we throw the blind up, we sit in it, it gets hot. By 10 o'clock, we can't handle the heat, so we <laughs> wrap it up and we go into town and find, find air conditioning. <laughs> I know I've talked to a lot of people, and that seems to be the, the reoccurring thing because it gets so hot out there, especially in a blind. So so, so there's a lot of excellent questions in there, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to skim through them. Um, th- I can remember distinctly when I killed the, the, the world record antelope, Long about four o'clock, I just wasn't sure I could take it anymore. I, I was close to passing out. It was the hottest I ever remember being in a blind. It was just unbelievable. And and it's, I usually stay out there all day. Uh, like I said, you'd have to go a mile and a half out there. And so I would get out there in the dark so that the antelope didn't see me cross the prairie and get there. And I'd come back out in the dark. So I would sit there the entire day. And, um, so it's like a 12, 14-hour day then. Yeah, at least in August yeah. and September. Those are long, long days, probably 16-hour days. and um, So it was a long time to be out there. And um, we would, uh, in, in the early days, we, we would hunt in pit blinds. Before we did pop-up blinds or, or build ground blinds, we would hunt pit blinds. We'd, uh, we'd just study the antelope and see where they walked. And, and um, they would kind of walk you know, rolling ridge, they, they like to be able to see. So they kind of walk a particular ridge line. And, and so we'd just find depression areas and we would go out there in the dark and we would lay in those depressed areas or hollow them out a little bit. And we would lay in the direct sun 16 hours a day wow. waiting for an antelope to come by. Wow. And then we started adding decoys to that mix. So, so when I killed the one with a decoy, I was actually in one of those depressions. Um, and uh, the first person there to congratulate me was Game and Fish, who was miles away watching with binoculars. Wow. And then uh, as soon as I got to him, the Game and Fish hiked in and, uh, and the other hunters that had spooked them in the first place. And so, so I had some help. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, so the, uh, I don't think that antelope, they probably have the worst sense of smell of any of the big that they have some sense of smell, but... I honestly don't remember ever being winded by an antelope, ever. So I would not be that concerned with that. Um, maybe being an... Obviously, if you can keep the wind in a, a favorable direction, that's always best. And you're probably going to do that instinctively just from being a hunter. Uh, but I really don't think it's as important as almost anything else. Uh, being dark inside the blind is very important. So they can't see you. So maybe the sun angle, so that you're not shooting into the sun if you can avoid it. Um, the uh, 
ways to keep cool. We used to freeze a jug of water and uh, as it thawed out through the day, you'd have ice water to drink when you were just laying out in the direct sun and uh, uh, things like that. So, um, but uh, find a water hole that they're using and uh, using pop-up blinds is a great way to go these days. Uh, decoys, I don't think are as effective as uh, as they were when the season was a little bit later, but some people do have luck with them. It really kind of depends on uh, if they're acting like they're chasing does in, in the area. If they're if they're being really aggressive and things, that might work for you. Yep, makes sense. And one of the things I kind of learned is just watch the animal from a long distance, and they'll kind of tell you what their routine is. And I think that was one of the biggest things I had to learn is I wanted to be up and close and be within a couple of hundred yards and I'm always pushing and I didn't know it, but then I learned if I just stay away and just watch them from a distance, even though I might be watching for six or eight hours, those antelope are going to kind of grid and tell us what they like to do every day and tell you which water tanks they want to go to and things like that. And antelope do make a scrape, like white-tailed deer do. They uh, they scrape and then they, they go to the bathroom in that scrape. And, and so you can go out on the open prairie and you can find their tracks and you can find their scrapes. And, and uh, to some degree, they'll walk that scrape line Yep. Uh, like a whitetail will. And, um, but uh, I will tell you something you had asked before about uh, selecting a water hole. I totally agree with you, and that's what I do. I watch the antelope. I tend to find an antelope I want. I go out and spend a lot of time scouting. I find a particular buck that I want, and then I find a, out how to kill that buck. You know, I watch him. I learn his habits. I figure out where he's watering, um, if he's watering. If it rains, maybe that's not going to be any good. So I need to know what else he does habitually in order to take him. But I try to focus on one particular buck, um, if at all possible. But I can tell you that in selecting a water hole, uh, a lot of times there's a windmill that's pumping water into a metal tank. Sometimes that metal tank will overflow. Maybe it'll trickle 10 or 20 yards away and form a little dirt pond. Or, or maybe there's just overflow that's pooling up around the metal tank. Antelope almost always prefer to drink out of the dirt instead of a, a metal tank. So if you have to set up and maybe there's two different ponds, there's the metal tank that the windmill's feeding, maybe 50 yards away there's a dirt tank and uh, you have you can't shoot at both of them and you have to pick. Uh, I would tend to take the dirt tank. I just think antelope uh, tend to prefer drinking out of dirt for whatever reason. Yep, that's a great point, great point. Now what about the blind placement, like how far you, should you be setting up a ground blind at 40 yards off that edge of that water or 25 yards? Is there a certain distance that allows the animal to be a little more comfortable where you don't have to be so far back? Especially like in, like you said, you said it's it's in the prairie. You're going to put a ground blind up and here's this object that just basically is all of a sudden it just appears and here's this massive object right next to their water source. Uh, a few things about that. So generally, antelope don't water a lot at night. They will water at night. I've seen... Uh, People show me trail cameras of them watering at night. Um, but by and large, they prefer to water in the daytime. They could water almost any time of the day. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I like to stay out. They're not like deer that water in the morning and evening. They're, they're just as likely to water almost any time of day. Um, they, don't, they don't seem to be as alarmed if a, a blind show, shows up all of a sudden. So while it's nice if you can put it out several days or even a week in advance, um, I don't know that that's that necessary. I have set up blinds on pretty short notice. 
The antelope might be more nervous when they come in, but they generally will come in. Uh, they'll almost always face you when they're drinking. Mm -hmm. However, if you had it in a, a long time for them to get used to it, maybe they wouldn't face it as much, mm -hmm. and you might get a better shot. Uh, but if it shows up suddenly, they're going to come in more cautious. They're going to do more head fakes when they go to drink, trying to catch you moving. And they're going to almost always water facing directly at you. Um, so you're going to get a more difficult shot as they go to leave and turn uh, than you would be if they're uh, more familiar with your blind being there. I don't think the distance is all that crucial. I usually try and set up where I feel I have a very high percentage chance of making a good shot. Antelope are very quick. Um, I've shot a bedded antelope and had the arrow hit perfectly, and it's not there when the antelope gets there, even though the shot was under 30 yards. Um, so they're very quick off the ground if they're bedded. They're very quick if they're standing. They can spin and get out. They can duck under the arrow. So I usually try and put it no farther than 30, 35 yards just because I don't want them to jump the string and get a bad hit. Yep. Great, great points. Great points. The other thing that I learned as I lost a ground blind is cattle. Cattle like those dirt tanks. And what I didn't realize my first time is I'm in there and here comes this, all the cattle come in and I'm just letting them do their thing. And next thing you know, they all want to come up and start rubbing against my blind to get the flies off. And that was kind of a comical thing. And it's like, what do you do? It's, it's their home territory. It's what they do. And I put this object that they want to come and scratch themselves. I don't know if you run into the same thing. That, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about talking about that, but I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, that is absolutely a problem, and you certainly want to be respectful of the cattle. Uh, there are some ranches that don't allow bow hunters to hunt water anymore, um, in large part because the people would chase away their cattle or uh, interfere with the cattle drinking. So I always make sure that I'm very respectful of the cattle. I, I've never, ever chased them away. Uh, but they will rub up against your blind. I have less of a problem when I'm in it. Uh, if you let the cattle know that you're in it, they don't tend to do that. But I also don't leave them set up overnight, typically. Um, I will collapse it and carry it 50 yards away from the water at night and get there early in the dark and set it back up uh, yep. sometimes just to protect it. Um, it's very windy out on the prairie, so you do need to stake it down. You hate to be hammering too much out there. Uh, another good reason to get there well before light so that you can uh, do a little hammering if you need to because there's high winds a lot of times late in the afternoons yep. when the monsoon storms come in. Uh, but uh, some people, if you have uh, permission from the landowner, have put up uh, uh, fence posts and maybe put a couple strands of barbed wire around their blind to keep the cattle off of their blind. That's sometimes an option. I've never personally done that. Yep. Um, sometimes you can uh, uh, put your blind up against another object and the cattle might not pay as much attention to it if there is a windmill, if there is a tank or a storage tank or, or something. Sometimes it's less noticeable to the cattle and they won't do that. Yep. Thank you. I think um, a lot of us have a problem that while you guys were discussing this that I, I just thought of. Um, if you are looking for and this is obviously specific to any animal, but with us talking about antelope, if you're hunting and you're going after what you want, what you consider a record book, can you talk a little bit or educate us on why it's okay to have a little bit of tag soup? If you are dead set on that animal, 
you want that 82 inch buck and you're not going to take anything less that it's okay to walk away and not and not have uh your your tag punched well i think that's very much a personal choice of the hunter uh, as we get to the point there there is not a single archery antelope tag that can be had in arizona that can be guaranteed to be in the max point pool for fewer than probably 11 or 12 or even more points these days so it's likely going to be over a decade to draw a tag. So some people just want to make sure they get one. If they've never killed one before, they just want to make sure they get one. And absolutely every antelope, especially with a bow, but any antelope you get is a trophy. Uh, there's sometimes being a person that looks for big animals mm -hmm. all the time, you forget that probably three-fourths or 80% or more of the hunters out there just want to get one and um, they're not as picky about that so it, it's absolutely whatever the hunter wants to do if they just want to make sure they get one maybe they want to make sure they get one with a bow but on the flip side it could be 20 30 years or maybe they won't ever draw a tag again in their lifetime uh, we're destroying habitat at a pretty fast rate in arizona and and the population of antelope is going to continue to go down um, just due to the the lack of habitat so um a lot of people want to make sure they get a nice one, but uh, fortunately, in most units, Game of Fish gives us a two-week season for archery, so you can afford to do both. You can you can hold out for whatever period of time you feel comfortable, trying to get the particular buck you've seen when you're scouting, or or just trying to find a particularly big buck and kill it, or uh, and then maybe the second half of the hunt or whatever number of days you think. Uh, uh, is appropriate you might just take the next legal buck that comes in just so that you get an uh, get one with a bow or get one with a rifle uh, because you may never have that chance again uh, i was fortunate that in the very early days i went to wyoming on a, a rifle hunt and took my bow with me and i managed to get uh, get a couple of back then you could shoot five antelope in a, a unit if you if you wanted to they were mostly does but but you could go out and shoot a few of them. You could shoot one with a bow. You could shoot one with a muzzleloader. And so I got a little bit of that out of the way. So when I came back to Arizona, on the rare chance, as tags got rarer and rarer, I could afford to be a little more selective because I had already taken a few. Um, that's still a good option. Wyoming's probably the best state to get a tag in to this day. There's probably still more antelope in Wyoming than there are people. And uh so that's a good way to kind of get the monkey off your back a little bit. And then when you do get one in Arizona, maybe you have a little experience hunting them and uh, you can be a little more selective uh, for the people that can afford the time to do that. Uh, it's a fairly reasonably priced hunt. Um, but it's really up to the person. My, I've been fortunate to take some really nice ones, so I try to find one um, that's above a certain score, maybe above a Boone and Crockett uh, antelope. But if I've scouted for weeks or months before the season and there just isn't an antelope like that, I find one that I find either interesting horn shape or or the biggest one that I could find, and I hunt that particular one. And I'm just as excited to take the biggest one that I found, regardless of what size he is. Uh, I've I've taken a number of bucks in New Mexico when it was a little easier to draw an archery antelope tag over there. And I would f actually probably enjoyed those hunts more than Arizona because 
you didn't expect to find uh, 85 or 90 inch antelope in New Mexico, in the places I hunted in New Mexico. So I went there a few days early. I found the biggest buck I could find. I hunted for that particular buck. And if I took that particular buck, I was very, very excited that, that I accomplished my goal, regardless of what the score was. Uh, they were still Pope and young bucks, but you know, they, they weren't over 80 inches. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that having maybe a little less, less pressure put on myself. Um, so it's really up to the person. My, my personal mantra has been for a number of years that if, if it's not an animal that I'm going to be excited when I take it, that animal doesn't deserve to lose its life. So even though I eat the meat and that's most of the meat I, I eat is game meat and it's more healthy for you and I really enjoy uh, living off of what I've taken. But if I'm going to be disappointed, you know, if I if I go on an antelope hunt and I've killed a lot of antelope now, and the best I can find is a, a 67 inch antelope nowadays, I, I'm fine going home with that one. I had a, a great elk tag here this past year, and you know, while I passed up quite a few bulls, every bull that I passed up was one that when I shot it, I would have been disappointed. I, oh, my hunt's over. Because hunting's fun, you know. I, I like to still be out there hunting. And once you shoot it, you're not out there hunting anymore. Your fun's over. It's not that big a bull. It's not that big a buck. You know, if I'm going to feel disappointed, I don't think that animal deserved to lose its life. So um, that's just my personal guideline for myself. If I'm going to be excited, regardless of what the size is, in New Mexico, maybe a 73-inch antelope's the absolute biggest one I could find. And when I take that one, I'm very excited. Um, in a unit in Arizona where I have found a few high 70s, low 80 type antelope. Taking a 73 might be an antelope I pass up because I'm going to be disappointed that, that I I don't want to say settled. But um, mm -hmm. but if it's early in the hunt and I took that one, you know, I, I don't want that antelope to, to lose its life for, for me yeah. to be disappointed in taking it. That's not what hunting is about for me. That's fantastic. That's a great perspective. Great perspective. I never even thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. So my last question is... Um, Dedication, patience uh, when it comes to hunting, um, specifically uh, antelope like in a, in a blind. Let's say you just you find that antelope as you talked about. It's the say it's the biggest antelope, it's a seventy-eight inch antelope, and, and you're going to hunt that and you pattern it. And it's a dry season. And you're going to sit water for five days in a row, let's say, which is unbelievable. Or in, fourteen days or 14, in a row. <laughs> or fourteen days, correct? Which I would say the average hunter ninety. Five, probably even higher percentage of that would not dedicate that many days dark to dark. So you want to talk about the mental preparation of that and the dedication that it would take to specifically go to the same place, sit in a five foot by five foot with a six foot ceiling in a small enclosure day after day and, and the mental side of that. What's something, because that to me, that that is the a major portion of dedication of waiting for a certain animal that a lot of people don't realize that dedication. So I have a, a very good hunting friend, John Hay, that uh, he tells me that that my best hunting skill, and I, and I think I agree with him, I hadn't thought about it, but um, I definitely know a lot of hunters in Arizona that are much better hunters than me, in my opinion. Um, but he says my best hunting skill is patience and and that I will form a plan and I will stick with it and, and I will do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal, no matter how much I suffer or, or anything else, and that that's really my best skill. And, and 
I hadn't thought of it, but I think he's probably right. I think that's what makes me successful more than if we say the average hunter, because I don't think my skills are a lot better than the average hunter. Um, I get more practice. I was fortunate enough to start hunting and bow hunting in particular back in the days when I could get an elk tag, um, maybe two out of three years or out of four years, you could get a bull tag. I could get an antelope tag two out of three or four years. So I got a lot of chances to screw up. And unfortunately, the younger hunters today aren't going to have the same chance to screw up, which is why it's nice to go to Wyoming and maybe hunt doe antelope with a bow. Um, my first uh, antelope killed with a bow was in Wyoming, and it was a doe. And I've and uh, it gives you a lot of chances to learn spot and stalk. It gives you a lot of chances to screw up moving in a, in a blind. And um, So go with other people. Uh, it's kind of hard on antelope, especially spot and stalk, to get that experience. But um, having the chance to screw up is going to do more to teach you how to hunt than anything else you can do. But, but uh, I've... I think that's just something that comes with you. I can't tell you how many great hunters I talk to that say, I I just can't do that. I, I just yeah, I just don't have what it takes. Corky Richardson, Randy Ulmer have both told me, I just I try I try if if I know that's the best way to kill that buck, I try to do it and I just can't do it. So it's not for everybody. Some people would much rather be out there. It is difficult as the season ticks by, first you don't know that that animal's still even alive. Um, maybe someone took the one you're waiting for. Uh, nowadays with social media and things, you could check your phone depending on and if you're in a place that has service. And maybe you'll find out if someone took it. You could talk to guides. The word gets around a little better. It didn't in the old days. You might sit there for days and that antelope or that deer or whatever you're hunting isn't even available anymore. So, um, but... Um, but I think you're just kind of born with the ability to take the heat uh, in the case of hunting early season deer or antelope. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a baby when it comes to the cold. I do not like going out and hunting deer in the rut because I, once I'm out there, it really doesn't bother me. I hunted uh, bison a couple years ago. It, was, it just snowed all day every day for, and I was camped out for six weeks and it just snowed nonstop and it, my trailer doesn't have heat in it, and it just when I'm in it, it doesn't bother me. But when I'm in a warm house, thinking, oh, do I want to go out and hunt deer in the rut today? It's cold out there. Cold gets me a lot more than heat, and it's just a personal thing. Some people yeah. embrace the cold. Some people embrace the heat. So um, it's just something I was born with the ability to do. And, and uh, as I get older, I film all of my hunts, and I, I've gotten to where – Getting things on film and, and taking photographs of things is at least, if not more important to me than taking the animal. And I find that I it's a lot easier to film yourself when you hunt by yourself to be in a blind. So I find myself hunting more in a blind just because of the filming aspect, really. And uh, so I enjoy filming the birds. A lot of people will go out and film their hunt and, and they will... Uh, they'll come back with three minutes of footage of the animal they shot. If I'm they're guilty. lucky, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it took years yeah. for me to get my first kill on video. I kept screwing up. Yeah. And um, now I, I, I pretty much get all of them on video. And um, 
but I film the birds. I film me inside the blind reading. I film, you know, during the day I find things like that to do. Um, everything that comes in, I enjoy. Um, it makes the day go by more. And then at the end, I make it into a movie and I've got all that B-roll that I took. But uh, it helps pass the time and enjoy the other wildlife that comes in. Don't just film the one animal that you, you take. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I know we put Chet in the coos deer ground blind this year, and I think he probably lasted two hours before he had to get out. He was sweating so bad. He didn't get until like 12 o'clock, and by 2 o'clock he was ready to jump out. So <laughs> I, I could attest to that. I'm, I'm built for the cold. I'm not built for the heat. <laughs> I do not do well, uh, even though I've lived here for – Almost my whole life. Um, it seems to me the summers just keep getting worse and worse. I would much rather be hunting in the snow, um, either in state or out of state, than it, it's hard for me to sit motionless in, in when it's super hot, and I just don't don't care for it. But that's my personal. And and, and I'd say there are probably more people like you than there are like me. Uh, I think my parents helped train me from a young age because I grew up in Phoenix. I was born in Phoenix, and uh, uh, we had a swamp cooler growing up, so yep. 110 degrees, 115 degrees summer when we'd get thrown out of the house and be out in the heat all day playing outside. Back, Kids playing outside is something you used to do in the olden days That's true. Um, before video games were invented. Um, but we spent the whole day playing outside in the heat, and even inside the house most months, you know, once the humidity came in late summer, it was worse inside the house anyway. So you got used to humidity, high humidity and sweating. You got used to the direct sun. And so I just grew up that way. So I think that probably helped train me uh, for that aspect of hunting. Oh, that's true. No, no, we appreciate you coming in. I think we'll probably do a future. Oh, go ahead. I, I did want to talk a couple of times I've mentioned how hard it is to get a tag nowadays. And, and so... In preparation for this, I've I've actually always collected hunting regulations, and I have Arizona's hunting regulations clear back to 1974, the the first year I killed my very first big game animal in Arizona, and uh, so it was interesting to look back and see how antelope hunting has changed in Arizona over the years, and and uh, so I just pulled a few stats uh, from Game of Fish statistics on success and how many tags there were by looking in the old regulations. And so I just wanted to touch on, on, on why it's so much harder to get a tag these days than it was when I started. I just thought it was interesting to look back. So 1974 was the first year I had a regulations, and strangely enough, from what I can tell from Game Fish documents, that was Arizona's first archery antelope hunt. Yeah. Um, so in 1974, there was only one hunt. It was unit 6A and 6B, strangely enough. Maybe they felt that you needed to be in the pine trees to sneak up on one with a bow and arrow. Uh, so they didn't give us any of the traditional antelope units. Maybe they were worried um, about it was too hot for us. So they want to put up a little cooler country. Maybe so. <laughs> and also, you know, rifle hunters don't like to give up their tags to archers. So those are the ones they could take away from, from rifle hunters or introduce a new hunt without... Uh, but there were 50 tags, only 16 first-choice applicants. There were only 37 hunters, so they didn't even give out all the tags. Um, they hunted for an average of five days each, and uh, they killed two bucks. So wow. about a 5% hunt success on that first hunt. And then I just picked a few random years. The, uh, the uh, first year that, uh, that I had my first archery antelope tag was 1986. 
By then, there were, uh, there were seven archery hunt numbers. There were 420 archery tags given. And uh, hunt success had gone all the way up to 8.5%. So it wasn't, mm. wasn't getting that much higher. Um, back then, uh, Unit 5B was giving out 125 permits. Uh, 10, 18A, and 18B were all together. They gave out 150 permits in those three units together. Wow. Um, and then we flash forward a little bit. Um, let's just jump to the year 2000. So by then, they went from f up to 551 archery tags. Uh, rifle tags had been cut in half from the 1,268 that there were in 1974. So basically, I think... They moved half the tags over to archery as more people started applying for the archery hunts. Uh, there were about an even number of rifle and archery tags. And um, uh, that 150 tags in 10, 18A, and 18B had fallen to 100 because success had, had uh, almost doubled and gone up to 13.6%. Uh, 5B dropped from 125 tags down to 75 tags in 1995 down to 35 tags in 2000, and today it's all the way down to eight tags. Um, wow. Wow. In 19A, when I killed my world record antelope, uh, 1995, 19A had two hunts. There were 110 permits in the first hunt. There were 80 permits in the second hunt. It was a split hunt. Now today, they not only have lowered it to 14 permits in each of the two hunts, uh, they've taken it from a two-week season down to a one-week season. So... Uh, all to try and uh, lower hunt success because back then we didn't have rangefinders. We had bows that were 180 feet per second. We didn't have pop-up lines. Almost everyone, everyone that killed an antelope was spot and stalk, uh, occasional decoy. Um, but but success has gone from five percent to eight and a half percent to 13.6 percent in the year 2000. In 2010, it jumped up. It's 30 percent, so it doubled again. And now it's over 40%. There are some units before they cut down to a one-week season in 19A. There were years when, when that hunt was 80% success. So um, add to the yeah. fact that we're destroying habitat, and uh, they built a highway right through the center of Unit 19A, uh, which completely demolished the antelope population. It's just a small fraction of the number of antelope that were back in that area in the 90s. So we're... It's the easiest terrain to build houses on, so they're building yeah. cities and towns and, and urban sprawl all over the antelope prairies. Um, so we have a fraction of the antelope available, so every year the tags have to go down. Yep. The population of Arizona is probably four times what it was back then. Uh, Modern-day equipment has caused uh, success to be eight times higher than it was on the first hunt. So permits are going to get fewer and fewer, which means, and hunters get more and more in Arizona at least, so yep. so uh, tags are going to get farther and farther apart. So it's a tough decision when when a, a young hunter gets their first antelope permit today. Do I just try and get one, or do I try and take one that will make the record book? Fortunately, the record book minimums on antelope tend to be pretty pretty low for, for bow hunters at least, and uh, so almost any mature buck that you take – that's uh, you know a few inches longer than his ears will probably make at least the state book. Um, a 13, 14 inch uh, buck will make Pope and Young usually usually takes closer to a 16 and a half inch buck with decent mass and prongs to make Boone and Crockett. So 
um, you know, it's really a personal choice. And fortunately, at least with archery seasons, most of the hunts are long enough that you can start out at least uh, trying to get a nice one and then still have plenty of time left just to try and get one uh, since you may never draw a tag again. So, yep. uh, Great points. Great information. Fantastic information. Chet, anything else before we close? No. Do you have any, any last parting words um, that you'd like to share with our audience, Marvin? Um, not, not really. I think, uh, you know, too many people get hooked up on size. I, I know I, I'm not one to talk because I, I tend to try and hold out for larger animals. I'm the record secretary of the bow hunting in Arizona record book, and I measure for all, almost all the different hunting record books. But you just get to the point where you just want to enjoy the hunt, and that's why I try to go to other states that, you know, Wyoming doesn't, you know, the, the number of Boone and Crockett bucks uh, as a percentage of the bucks killed in Wyoming is a tiny percentage compared to Arizona. Uh, go somewhere when you can. Go out of state, especially antelope. Antelope's an easy one to go to any other state. They live in the wide open. It's easy to, to show up a day or two before a hunt and drive around and find out where the antelope are, get permission if it's private land, and, and just go experience some of these hunts before those opportunities are gone in these other states um, like it is almost gone in Arizona. So, um, but yeah, I just think it's unfortunate that too many people are hung up on scores, everything, and, and you've got to get that animal at all costs and, and whatever you do to other hunters in the process. And, and, uh, I just don't, uh, it's sad to see things going that way, but it's going to continue to get harder as permits get harder to get. People want to be successful when it takes 20 years to get a permit and they want to take 20 friends with them when they get a permit because those friends don't have tags anymore and, and they spread out and they're trying to help that guy get a tag which interferes with other hunters. And so, you know, I just like to remind people to try and be as courteous as possible. If someone points out to you that, hey, you're interfering with my hunt, be courteous and take a step back and, and, and try and work together and so that we can all enjoy this sport and you know, maybe sometimes you just want to put in for a hunt where you can just go enjoy yourself. I go to Africa periodically just because there's nobody else hunting on the ranch that I'm hunting. I can just enjoy myself and relax. I don't care about trophy size as much, you know. Try and find time for some hunts where it isn't all about yep. getting the biggest animal out there and just uh, get back to just enjoying hunting sometimes. It's yep. a great ethos. That's great. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody for uh, joining us on this podcast. Uh Everything archery, antelope hunting, and I we uh, the the wealth of knowledge that uh, Marvin gave us today is it's incredible, and and uh, I know that just my little bit of inter you know interactions with him over the last fifteen years, and not little, but we do spend some time together. Just the little nuggets that he threw out today were the same nuggets that he gave me, where I was able to harvest two of my archery antelopes out of Arizona when I had both of those, and I, I do know that if it wasn't for the the knowledge that he gave and some of the insight. It, what it did is it allowed me to get get through that learning curve quickly to allow me to be successful. Even though both of my antelope are under the 75 inch, they were both trophies, and I was super excited. And and when I brought them to, to Marvin to, to score them, you know the excitement and the joy that he had as a scorer, knowing that what it takes to harvest an antelope with a bow, you know, to me those were trophies, and and he was just as excited if it was a world record. So I appreciate that, Marvin. So. Well, it's been great knowing you over the years, and you've helped me on some of my hunts as well. So, thank you back for uh, 
for helping me get on a few animals over the years as well. Absolutely. All right, we'll close this in prayer. So, all right, Lord God, have we just uh, thank you for this uh, podcast, Lord. We just ask that you bless our listeners, Lord. And uh, we ask bless our friend Marvin, Lord. And uh, we also ask blessing upon the pod here where we're at today doing this podcast. And uh, bless Christian Hunters of America, Lord, and all we do. And if anybody out there needs prayer, uh, your, uh, please send us your prayer request at info at christianhuntersofamerica.org. In Jesus' name, amen. tuning into today's episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. If you have any prayer requests or you require any information, please look us up on christianhuntersofamerica.org or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram under Christian Hunters of America.